The thrilling voice of soprano Sondra Radvanovsky singing Pace Pace Mio Dio from Act 4 of Verdi's La Forza del Destino with the Philharmonia of Russia conducted by Konstantin Orbelian. A very warm welcome from me, Adrian Fox, to this week's edition of Great Interpreters. Tonight I have the special privilege of presenting a program on soprano Sondra Radvanovsky, who in recent years has established her reputation as one of the leading stars on the international opera stage and as one of the foremost Verdi sopranos of our time. Radvanovsky first came to my attention when I heard her in an extract from a 2008 Los Angeles opera production of Puccini's Suor Angelica, a moving portrayal that left an indelible impression and which made me realize that there was something incredibly special about this voice and artist. Then in November of last year, I was fortunate enough to hear Radvanovsky sing the role of Amelia in Verdi's Un Ballo in Maschera at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, an absolutely unforgettable experience. Hers is a rich and sumptuous voice, large yet capable of spinning out beautiful pianissimo phrases, thrilling and edgy, with an expressive timbre and undeniably recognizable. Like Maria Callas, Radvanovsky's is a voice that you either like or hate, but no matter in which category you find yourself, Sondra Radvanovsky is undeniably a force to be reckoned with. Before we continue with tonight's program, just a reminder that you can download a copy of this broadcast from my website on and off the record, www.onandofftherecord.com. And if you have any questions, queries or comments about tonight's program, please do contact me via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com or phone me here in the studio on 021-401-1013 during tonight's broadcast. Oh, 
Tacea la notte placida from Verdi's Il Trovatore, with the Philharmonia of Russia there conducted by Konstantin Orbelian. Born Sandra D. Radvanovsky in 1969 in the suburbs of Chicago to a musical family of Czech and Danish descent, Radvanovsky moved to Richmond, Indiana with her family when she was six years old. As a child, Radvanovsky was somewhat of an outsider, who in her own words just didn't fit in, and was happiest at home harmonizing to records and playing dress-up. Although playing sports gave her some solace, as did playing the flute, she was teased because of her name and laughed at because of her big voice. Who would have predicted, however, that the chubby tomboy would one day transform herself to become one of the world's leading prima donnas? Let's go back many years. and Did you love to sing as a child? I did. I did. I was, um, gosh, five or six years old. And my mother bought me a record player for my birthday and a Karen Carpenter. You're dating uh, yourself. Record, I know, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm only 32, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, Karen Carpenter singing. I and, loved her, too. <laughs> oh, God, what a voice. Oh, how tragic. And um, so I started singing along with it. And then I started harmonizing with it. And my mom said, hmm, I'm five-year-old, six-year-old, six-year-old, harmonizing with a, a singer, that's unusual. So church choir, standard, you know, way that people get into classical music. And um, my choir director in church said, this girl has a God-given talent. You really need to nurture it. And I started taking lessons when I was 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And you hear so many stories about singers that started young and really didn't make it because they were burnt out. They, you know... And I always had the passion. I mean, it was, I went to college for singing. I, you know, studied voice from when I was 11 years old until now I'm 43. And it's always been what I wanted to do. And I'm very lucky that I found my passion at 11 years old. At what point do you think, well, I'm going to be a opera singer? You know, I've, I've told this story many times. I don't know if you've read about it, but I saw Placido Domingo on TV when I was, oh gosh, 12, 
11, 12 years old, um, right before I started taking voice lessons. Um, and he was singing Tosca live on TV. I don't know how we landed on it, but I said, Mom, wait, 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 I want to see this, I want to see this. And I watched the whole thing, and I was entranced. And I pointed to the TV, and I said, I want to do that. My mom said, yeah, honey, okay. <laughs> but I did, and I started, when I took voice lessons, I only sang opera, classical music. I never, ever was like a teenage kid wanting to sing, you know, the songs of Journey or Pat Benatar, or, you know, all the, the singers that were when I, there when I was growing up. I only sang opera. And Why is that? I had a passion for it. I really did. I was entranced in not just the music, but that you could go and become someone else on stage and that I could act and pretend to be someone else because I always played dress up as a kid and, right. you know, as we do as kids. And I, I don't know. I just felt like in my gut, I loved it. It's something I wanted to do. And I stayed with it. How did you decide where to go to college? It was a very easy decision for me because I was living in Southern California at that time. My father was transferred out there from Chicago. And when I was in high school, I, I was transferred out in my junior year of high school, so junior and senior year. And my mother and I looked for a good voice teacher out there because I had to leave my one back in Indiana. And we found a really great professor at USC, University of Southern California, And I started taking lessons with him my junior year and senior year of high school. So it was just Logical. an assumption. I was going to USC, and I did. And then I went to UCLA, and I was a theater major at UCLA. Oh. So I learned about acting. I learned about all these lovely lights and cameras that are in here and, and how to position yourself and how to move on stage. And, and it was invaluable. I never knew how valuable all that time was learning about how to put on your own makeup and and about costume periods and and all of that it was brilliant did you start auditioning for uh, either like the met national council at this point or was it still too early i uh i left college i actually don't have a degree and i decided after my fourth year third or fourth year it's really not for me I didn't like that, um, the schedule, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And I really felt like I was learning more in my private lessons with my teacher at that point. So uh, I became a mortgage broker, mm, as right one here. does, a mortgage broker to earn money, and then um, studied privately. And I became a mortgage broker so that I could leave in the middle of the day and go take a voice lesson. Right, right. And so the first competition I did... I didn't want to do it until I felt I could win. And that was the Met National Council auditions, which I won two days after I turned 25. So you stay with the program for, what? Three years. Three years, yeah. Immediately after winning the National Council, they brought you into the... Yeah, yeah, the following fall. So I think we won it, it was April, because it was right after my birthday. And uh, I think I came back in July or August to start with the program and uh, had to pack up my whole life in Southern California and move here to New York. And the three years, it really made a lot of difference? Well, another little secret I will tell you. Um, I was When I won the National Council auditions, I sang probably arias and repertoire that was a little bit too big for me at the time. I don't know if Dennis remembers this. I came in singing Ritorne Vincitor from Aida, at 25, well, 24, when I sang the first auditions. And um, 
And I really thought that's what I should be doing. Because my teacher in L.A. said, you know, you're a spinto soprano. You're a verdi soprano at 24. And luckily, thank God, you know, they chose me as a winner. But Maestro Levine really had reservations, as a few other people did, too. Um, Gail Robinson, who was in charge of the National uh, Young Artist Program at the time. And my voice was very dark and heavy, unnaturally. And they really wanted me to lighten it up. So I had a, a new teacher here in New York. Wait a minute. Unnaturally, what do you mean by it was dark unnaturally? You were making you. Were I was making, making it dark, it dark mm. artificially dark. Maybe that's a better way to do it. I was producing a sound mm. instead of letting, I think, my true sound come out. And so I changed teachers when I moved here to New York and started studying with Ruth Falcon, who was a wonderful technician, a great voice teacher. And she changed my life and changed my voice. But they weren't sure if they wanted to keep me in the Young Artist Program for all three years. I was taken on a trial basis for the first year. And if I didn't change my voice from this artificially darkened color, because my voice is naturally dark anyway, mm -hmm. and I was making it even darker, um, then I think they were going to let me go. Mm -hmm. But thank God they believed in me enough, and Ruth Falcon worked hard enough with me and really changed my voice. So then after this happens and you're no longer singing Ritorna Vincitor, no. what does a 25-year-old spinto, or to be spinto Yeah, baby spinto, I called it. <laughs> what do you sing until you mature and are ready to sing the big roles? Well, that was the million-dollar question. That really was the million-dollar question. Nobody knew exactly where to put me, what I should sing. There was thrown around that I should sing only Mozart, so I tried singing Mozart, and I felt like I had this straight jacket on vocally. I just couldn't express what I was wanting to express, and I was getting tight in my body and tight in my throat. So Ruth said, listen, it's a long shot. How about we give her Trovatore just to work on the arias? Everything snapped, and we worked on the whole role. It wasn't straight-jacketing like Mozart was, but it was still in the bel canto kind of feel. And I did my first Trovatore at the Met when I was 27 years wow. old. Wow. Yeah, boy, if I had known now. <laughs> <laughs>
D'Amor Sulali Rosé from Act 4 of Verdi's Il Trovatore. And Konstantin Orbelian conducted the Philharmonia of Russia in this recording taken from Radvanovsky's album of Verdi Arias, released on the Delos label in 2010. Radvanovsky's breakthrough performance as Leonora in Verdi's Il Trovatore at the age of 27 set the extraordinary career trajectory for this soprano. Her critically acclaimed performances in Trovatore were followed in 2000 by a triumphant performance in the title role of Luisa Miller at Spoleto, and gradually opera stages across the world started opening up to her, including the Cologne Opera, the Opera Bastille and the Chicago Lyric. There are few sopranos around today whose vocal endowments are as perfectly suited to the Verdi repertoire as is Radvanovsky's. Hers is a dark-hued and sumptuous soprano of beauty and power, with a remarkable range from mezzo-lows to a high E-natural. She is also capable of a full range of dynamics, from a honeyed mezzo-voce to a house-filling fortissimo. And what's more, Verdi's music, in her own words, speaks directly to her heart. So you went in the direction of Verdi, which yes. has been, you sing more Verdi than anything else. Is that a true Absolutely, yes. absolutely. And what, yeah. are, what is your favorite Oof. Verdi, to, or what evening is the most gratifying of your Verdi, uh, all your ladies that you sing? Wow, I think that'd have to be Aida. Aida. Yeah, which is still a new role for me, too. Yeah. So Aida, and you, how yeah. many Verdi roles do you sing? Uh, Il Trovatore, La Traviata... Uh, Ballo in Mascara, Aida, Don Carlo, uh, Simon Bocanegra, uh, did I say Louisa Miller? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not done Otello. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, there's more. I know there's more. Yes. Vespri Siciliani, in the French version of Vep Sicilian, I did. Don Carlo. Um, and I'm moving on. In the next few years, I will be doing my first Forza del Destino. What about Nabucco? You go that far or not? Not yet. Not yet. I call those the angry women. Mm. And I'm staying away <laughs> from the angry women while I'm still doing the Donizetti Three Queens coming up in the future. So. And why is Aida your favorite or the most gratifying? I love the music. I love, love the, the O Patrimia and the story of it all. Um... I don't know. She just really vibrates in me, like the whole character of her and a woman really torn between two separate things. And I feel that oftentimes living in Canada, being an American, you know, you feel torn between the two countries. And and also I feel torn a lot between your friends and your work and your personal life and your work. It's really a, always a struggle. And I really can relate to that. Most Aida's are also Amelia's, not always vice versa. Are they quite similar? In some ways, yes. And that's the tessitura, where the most of the role lies. Uh, but then you have the length of Aida. Oh, my gosh, she never leaves the stage, poor girl. Um, That's why it's called Aida. <laughs> Big bucks, yes. Thank you very much. But also, Aida has another element that Balo doesn't have as much. And Aida does have a lot of that high, floaty singing. And everyone waits for one note in Aida. One note. Yep. And it is in your big aria in the third act. And it's in the O Patria Mia, and there is this big high C, big high C, (laughs) (laughs) exposed. And then lovely Mr. Verdi put a big diminuendo down to a pianissimo on it. And that 
scares 99.99% of sopranos that could sing Aida. But, the, but it doesn't scare you. That is just so extraordinary to hear you sing that. I mean, I'm just... Touch it, touch it. Oh, boy. It's, I, I tell you, I listened to that performance from Canadian Opera Company um, on the radio, and I've never heard that high C sung the way... Sandra Ravanovsky sings. No pressure. None. It's no pressure. Stunning. It's, amazing. it's <laughs> Thank truly you. amazing. It's really stunning. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah.
As one critic noted, that must be one of the most beautiful pianissimo endings of O Patria Mia one will ever hear. Aida's Act Three aria, O Patria Mia, is sung there by Sondra Radvanovsky, with the Philharmonia of Russia conducted by Konstantin Orbelian. The first leading Verdi role you sang at the Met, as far as I know, was the role you've performed the most often in your Four whole career. Four million times. <laughs> yeah, and El Trovatore. Leonora in Trovatore. And so you spent 10 years doing other Verdi yes. heroines before this season when you had role debuts first as Aida and now as Amelia. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so what makes Trovatore, Luisa Miller, Don Carlo, and even Vespri Siciliani roles that you wanted to do first, but before you ever got around to Amelia sure. and Aida. Sure. Well, well, Aida is a different duck, I think, even than Balo is, uh, because Aida is a lot more what we would call declamatory in the middle voice. And so you need to have a little more power and to be able to put a little more pressure, we say, on the voice in the middle voice. And it's it's a tough thing. It's high, it's, but it's also low. And that for me has always been a bit of a, an issue with me because I have the high notes and I have the high and soft and the lilty stuff. But when you start to get into the middle and the lower part of the voice, it comes with, with age, a lot of it, and also just technique and working on the technique. And Balo, Amelia and Balo, is also a lot of middle voice singing. And you have to get over a large-ish orchestra. So you have to be able to, to really put a little more pressure on it. And that you don't want to do when you're too young because you can kind of ruin the voice. So there's a, a sequence that one does the Verity rolls in. So now that you are doing first Aida and then Amelia, do you like that sequence as opposed to the other way around? Balo first and then Aida. Did it make sense to do it the other way? You know, um, my coach and I, we were saying just the other day, gosh, you know, I, I wish that I had done Balo first because it's not as declamatory as Aida. But that being said, I didn't have a choice and I did Aida first. And what it really helped me with was the lower register of my voice for this Balo. So I think I'm very happy that it happened the way it did. Now, you talked to me the first time we ever talked about Bala. You talked about her humaneness and her vulnerability. How do those qualities emerge? Well, you know, I think she is is a woman really, really torn because she's in love with a king and he's in love with her. I don't think the marriage or, you know, the, the relationship was ever consummated. So it's a secret thing and a secret love and... And she doesn't lie to her husband. She tells her husband, yes, you know, I did love him. I do love him. I did love him, whichever way you look at it. So she's very human, and it happens to all of us, to to married people. How many times do you hear, yes, I fell in love with someone else? It, it happens. It's human nature. And so I think that she is not this demanding woman and aggressive woman. She's just very gentle and... and kind of caught between these two men. And and it's her husband's best friend, for goodness sake, that she falls in love with. So. so so she's vulnerable basically everywhere in the role, isn't she? The whole role. It, it, even her first aria, which is quite, in a way, declamatory, Eco Lorido Campo. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer to God, really. And she is very vulnerable, saying, please, you know, rid my heart of this love that I feel for this man, this forbidden love. And then her big second aria, Morro, is just begging her husband, please, you can kill me, but let me see my son one more time and think about his future without me. 
she never once says something like go away or leave me alone or any of these declamatory phrases. She's always very, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this. Please, God. The whole role. And in a way, she's most vulnerable the first time we see her because she's coming to Ulrika saying, help me. Exactly. What can I do? And why are and she says to you, to Amelia, why are you here? I want to rid my heart of this burning love. Mm. It's always been a rarity to have a great Verdi soprano. Peter Gelb, the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, stated not too long ago about Radvanovsky. And we need her in these roles, he said. She has an unusual, distinctive voice, which of course is what makes her so interesting. You know it's her when you hear her. Here is Eco Lorido Campo from Act Two of Verdi's Un Ballo in Maschera.
Echo Lorido Campo from Act Two of Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara, and sung there by Sondra Radvanovsky in that recording from 2010. So the Verdi ladies that you sing are 
They're generally very warm. They're feminine. They're noble. They're vulnerable. So Amelia has all of that. Yeah. So how do you define her as an individual separate from all of these other ladies that you sing in Verdi? Well, you know, that's always a fine line, isn't it? Um, the production always, for me, helps me differentiate between the women and Okay, Trovatore, I've done four million times, as I said. So, you know, every production is a little different. But I try to find how she thinks. I always try to get to the, the core of the character. How is she thinking? Why did she end up falling in love with this man? And that, for me, really is the core of the character. Why did she allow this to happen? Why did it happen? And so every Verdi character has a different core character. And that's why I'm trying to find the truth in her. So like Aida, she's got these two arias, one rather longer than the other and radically different. Yes, two separate voices. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So so contrast those two. Well, it it is. It's very much like Aida. The first one is a little more declamatory, more... Grand scale. Grand scale, yeah. yeah. ABA, you know, we, we have the different sections. And like Aida, you have the O Patria Mia, which is definitely more a lyric voice that sings that with a big high C. And also, well, you do have that in the second half of the, the first aria here in, in Balo, a very exposed high C as well. But the second aria in this is, I find more in the vein of Trovatore, in the D'Amor Sudare Rose, the, the weeping kind of the piangere the, that the D'Amor is. Um, and the O Patria I find very much in that same vein. Mm. So very similar. I think, you know, he wrote these operas close together, too. Now, Act 2 is really spectacular for you, for your <laughs> character, because you're on stage from the beginning to the end, and she's got – she starts with a huge recitative and aria. She has a huge uh, love duet, then yeah. a big trio, and then a finale yeah. that is dramatically just riveting. So what secrets have you learned in your other Verdi roles about pacing in such large-scale repertoire so that you can go through Act 2 in a healthy way. And to get to Act 3? Yeah, to get to Act 3, <laughs> to yeah. actually make it Act 3. Yeah. Well, it is, you know, and the only... It is about pacing. All Verdi roles are about pacing for all the characters. And I think the only way to really know is to do it and to say, oh, gosh, I gave a little bit too much there. And also to go through the score and mark the places. Here I don't have to give so much. Here I can give 70% or, you know, 60% even. And sometimes, I'm saying this live now, sometimes in all the big choruses, one doesn't always sing every note. (laughs) Just saying, you know, that out there. In Vesperi, there's many, many points where I just kind of drop out and let the chorus, because the chorus is doubling you in so many Verdi operas. So you just let them write the orchestra. It's finding a balance, always in Verdi. It's finding a balance between singing loud and singing soft for me. And I love singing soft. I mean, that for me, because it draws the audience in. You don't want them to to always have your sound hitting them in the face. You want to draw them in with your soft legato singing. And so you you find those moments in every opera. So I'm thinking of the moments that allow you to exploit that in Balo, to exploit you know, exploit your ability to sing high and soft. Sure. Well, the cadence at the end of Morro, for sure. Um, at the end of the opera, when uh, Gustavo's dying, there's um, a few high, soft notes there. Not as many as there are in Trovatore, in Aida, for sure. Mm. I mean, Aida, pff, 
the second half of the opera is all about singing Heinz. Right. Do you think it's sort of cruel of Verdi in that all this incredibly agitated stuff happens like in the first half and then you have your some of your most sustained legato in the whole role coming at the very end of the whole thing? Love him, yeah. But he does that in all of the Verdi roles that I sing. If you really... The, in, for instance, in Ballo and Mascara, the first aria I sing is the Ecolorido Campo, which is no small little sing, by the way, you know. And so she gets all that screamy, screamy, screamy stuff out, and then she has to, in the next act, sing this beautiful obligato, you know, aria with just the celli, the morro, which you go from this to that. And then, for instance, in Vesperi Siciliani, she sings Arrigo Parle Ancora, and then the next act sings the Bolero. Which is very dazzling Day and, and night. Yeah. Trovatore, she sings Tacelo Notte, the first thing when she walks out on stage. Thank you. And then she goes and sings completely something different, Amor Sularinose. So he does that to the sopranos, I think just to torture them, because I really think he hated them, because he was married to a soprano. And I get that. If you talk to my husband, he would do the same thing to me. So, you know. But it's it's difficult. It's It's very hard pacing yourself and that is always I don't know if you find that with any Verdi opera it's all about pacing yourself so that when you do get to that beautiful O Patria Mia in the third act that you still have enough steam to sing that infamous high C. In June 2008 Radvanovsky appeared in a joint concert of Verdi scenes and duets with baritone Dmitry Hovorostovsky which was recorded and released on the Delos label. From that recording, we are now going to listen to an extract from Act 3 of Verdi's Un Ballo in Maschera, leading into Amelia's aria Morro Ma Prima in Grazia. Konstantin Orbelian conducts the Philharmonia of Russia in this live performance from the Great Hall of the Moscow Conservatory. Though this was their first time singing together, Radvanovsky and Hoverostovsky got on like a house on fire, and the pair have performed together many times since.
Moro ma prima in grazia from Act 3 of Verdi's Und Ballo in Maschera with Sondra Radvanovsky and Dmitri Hoverostovsky there and the orchestra, the Philharmonia of Russia, conducted by Konstantin Orbelian in that 2008 recording. And now for another treat, La Vergine degli Angeli from La Forza del Destino. And Konstantin Orbelian again here conducts the Philharmonia of Russia in this 2010 recording. Can you tell me what were some of the pivotal performances that uh, you feel were important to your career after that? 
Well, gosh, there's been so many. Um, but I really think one for me that, that sticks out in my mind was a Swarangerica that I did in Los Angeles. And I think that was about five years ago now. And um, it was just really a culmination. I feel that as, as singers get older, when we hit our 40s, we really hit our prime, especially for a voice like mine, which is, I don't know how to describe it exactly, a full lyric, lyrico spinto soprano, soprano da gilita, whatever people want to put, you know, whatever stamp they want to put on my voice, uh, dramatic coloratura. Um, I really think that my voice is just starting to come into its own now. And this one, Angelica, was really my first foyer into singing Puccini. And for me, it was life-changing because once again, I had a great director, William Friedkin, um, who is known for doing movies more than doing opera. He did the movie The Exorcist. He directed that. So I know, seriously, from The Exorcist to Suara Angelica, I don't want to know that route, but it was amazing. And um, it's just like the stars aligned. And vocally, it fit me like a glove. And I had just left my old voice teacher um, after being with her for many years. So it was quite a scary endeavor to do uh, a new role, my very first new role, without my old voice teacher, who I'd been with for over 15 years. And just to, to jump off that, you know, the, the diving board and just into the deep end of the water and see if I would sink or swim. And fortunately, I swam and, and it was a huge, huge life-changing uh, moment for me in my opera career, as well as me personally. And from then on, then people started realizing, oh, you know, she does have a big voice. We can hear her singing Tosca. We can hear her singing the Ballo and Mascara and Aida. And that really was a starting point for all these contracts now that I have for singing Tosca and Aida and Ballo and the bigger music. This work, this third of Il Tritico, could be one of the darkest and most depressing pieces of music out there, but Puccini, in his wisdom, doesn't leave you there at the end, really, does he? Well, <laughs> we, we did a run-through of the opera uh, the other day, and I have to say that they were passing the Kleenexes, so it's quite effective the way that Bill has chosen to end the opera, and I'm not going to give it away, but I had a hard time singing without crying, and it, I don't know if it's it's sad in a way it's it's uplifting but still it's a very sad story it's very heart-wrenching what happened to this poor girl victim of circumstances really how do you deal with the emotions um, as a singer obviously you can't sing if you're choked up no no you can't and with all the Puccini music I just did uh, Men on the Skull for the first time in that last act if you think about what's happening oh my God, you just want to kill yourself. Well, I do die. But I've worked with many great people over the years, Puccini experts, Renato Scotto, Maestro Levine, Diana Soviero, people that have really made a specialty of Puccini. And they've all said the same thing to me. Sandra, in rehearsals, there's a line that if you step over that line, you can't sing, you start crying. So that's what rehearsals are for, to see where that line is, to see how far you can push it emotionally before you start crying, before you emotionally break down. And then you learn, okay, there's that line. I can kind of tiptoe right up to it, 
that if I go over it now, I know that I'm in trouble. And it's not my job, as I said before, to to put my spin on it. I just have to be the vessel. So I have to learn to kind of put all the emotion into my singing, put all the emotion into my face and my acting, but not put my own personal take on it. And it's very difficult, especially with this music and, and the story of, you know, having a baby, have it taken away from you, and then at the end having Grace or whoever come down and she has a vision or however a person's take is on this opera. It can be so incredibly special and, and, and moving and emotional when when you are right at that line. I think there's a, as an audience member, I think there's a way that we can kind of tell, um, you know, when X and Y cross at the right spot. Oh, yeah. You get those tingly feelings up and down. Yeah, the, the smaller your back. Uh, and I get them too. And And sometimes as a performer, we try so hard to get that. And when we try so hard is when it doesn't happen. And that is working with a great director is a person to tell you, you know, Sandra, stop trying so hard, just let it happen. And, you know, we're human beings. One day it'll happen, one day it won't happen because, you know, I may have burned the omelet that I made for breakfast in the morning and I'm not in the mood to do singing or I had a fight with my husband or whatever. You know, life is life. But Puccini really gives us the opportunity with the music to feel it a lot more than other composers. Let's listen now to Radvanovsky singing the moving Senza Mama in this live 2008 performance from the Los Angeles opera production of Puccini's Suor Angelica. James Condon conducts the Los Angeles Opera Orchestra in this recording.
I know that you've been order, offered a lot of dramatic repertoire and some <laughs> of it you're starting to do and some of it you're still saying no to. So in looking at a possible new role, I mean, what are the, the signs that you anticipate that sort of present you with, yeah, I, I can give the green light on this or no, I'm giving the red light on this? Well, first off, I have to like the roles. I know Morella Franey told me once, you know, the audience will know if you don't like it. You mean if you don't like this the woman you're playing? The, the woman and also the, the, the music. If you don't like it, she said, that they'll feel it. They'll, they'll get a sense that, oh, she's not really enjoying this. So I have to like the character as well as the music, first and foremost. Then you have to look at the vocal aspect of it. Can I sing this? Can I make it through the night? And, um, you know, that was a big issue for me with Aida. We put off singing Aida for many years. And finally, now that I'm 41, we said, hey, okay, it's time. Because you can meet the vocal demands. And you can meet the vocal demands under stress doing it in a Mm. theater. And there's always, it's one thing to sing through something in a studio with your teacher or your coach. But it's a complete different thing to sing through it with orchestra on a stage, you know, with other cast members too. And so you have to have people that you trust. So have you been in a situation where you actually took a role that you were considering into a space that was bigger than a practice room and tried singing it to see how it felt? No, but that's why I have my teacher and my coach and my manager to tell me from their experience, yes, I think you could do this. And because that's always that's always a problem for all singers. Am I ready to do this? And it's it's a huge question that we all run into. And I'm actually going, it sounds like I'm going bigger, but in the next few years, actually, I'm going backwards into bel canto repertoire. This is as large as I get uh, vocally, as Balo and Aida. I won't do anything more than that because, yes, I have been offered turn. Turn that, yeah. Oh, Abigail, never, perhaps. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and the, the, lady the Scottish and, yeah. lady, yes, has yeah. been <laughs> offered and Attila and, you know, all those dr- dramatic things, but I'm just not. I call them the angry women because there's also an issue of temperament that you have to throw into this whole mix. And when one gets temperament, oftentimes one gets just tight in their body, which then registers in their voice. So there's always that. You have to be the master of your voice in order to, to understand and know when you're ready to do all of this. And I'm just not ready for all that yet. There's one that is a huge undertaking, but I really want to do it. And that is Peak Dom. Mm-hmm. The problem is I don't speak Russian, and that is a very big opera. To it's a lot of words, and it's a lot of Russian. But um, Turandot is really the one that's kind of looming right back here, going hello, <laughs> hello. It's not scheduled yet. You haven't. Not yet. No. Um, I said after I turned fifty, so mm-hmm. we're starting to schedule into that year now. So maybe we'll think about it. But none of the Wagner. No, really, I have no desire to do that. Why? Um, I don't speak German. Mm-hmm. Truly, that is the biggest problem for me, is that Wagner is so talky. You know, there's a lot of dialogue back and forth. And I really think you have to have an understanding of the language to do it, yeah. to do it justice. Yeah, excuse me, you have people trying to push you in that direction? Or? Yes, yeah. uh-huh. quite a few people. I, because I think the size of my voice, and I, I say to my husband so many times, gosh, the one and only thing I wish in my lifetime is that I could be standing on stage and actually sitting out in the audience listening to myself sing. Because everybody says, oh, you have such a large voice. 
you know, to my ears. Exactly, to your ears. Can you put into words and describe your voice? Absolutely. It's, it's funny because I've started teaching voice. And to teach voice, you really have to be able to communicate what you hear, what you feel, and how you sing. And I've really been honing that. And it, yes, it's, I sound like a gnat. A, a gnat, a little mosquito to, you when to my ears. <laughs> my goodness. When it's in the right place. When it's in the wrong place, it sounds really dark and full and rich because I'm listening to myself. But you as audience members won't hear that. You'll just hear this dark, woofy sound. But when it's right, when it's in the right placement, and we call it the chiaroscuro, to me it sounds like a little mosquito. It sounds very... And, and it's very unfulfilling to me. How long did it take you to figure out that that's the right sound? And well, I'm 43 now, and I probably just figured this out about last year or two <laughs> years ago. So <laughs> quite a few years. I did my first offer when I was 21, so 20-some years, yeah. Speaking of your vocal cords, mm. you did have a crisis several, 10 years ago or so? Yeah, 10 years ago, oh, yeah. Well, what, tell us what happened. Well, I, I very early on knew that I had some ailment on one of my vocal cords because you could hear when I was singing there was a little bit of air kind of going through the cords um, and for you, all of you out there that don't understand air vocal cords are very very tiny bands of muscles that phonate like this and if there's anything on the clean the side of the vocal cord air will seep through it and you can hear it in a voice. You can hear some singers, raspy singers, more pop singers, you can hear it. You know, the ones that have that <gasps> in their sound. I'd like it. But in an opera singer, that's not a good thing. Um, so I knew very early on I had pneumonia as a child. And the doctor seems to think that when they put the tube down my throat when I had pneumonia, he nicked one of my vocal cords just slightly. Well, as the years went on, that little nick, got larger and larger and formed what we would call a callus on one of the vocal cords because they, when we talk, they, they phonate very rapidly. So it was always hitting the other one and getting bigger, bigger, more irritated. And it finally got to the point when I was singing more and more uh, that I would need at least two days in between performances for my voice to heal. And those two days I had no life. I couldn't talk. I couldn't see friends. And I said, I, I, I can't do this anymore. So I went to a lovely doctor in Boston, Dr. Stephen Zeitels, who is a godsend. He was the one who just actually uh, did surgery on Adele mm. and Mick Jagger. I mean, all the pop singers have been to him and a lot of opera singers have been to him. And he, I don't know, in one hour, boom, off it came, changed my life. Wow. Changed my whole technique because I learned how to sing with this impediment but then I had to learn how to sing without it. How long yeah. was the recovery after you had the... Um, I didn't... I went back and sang an opera probably about two months later, like opening night of an opera. Two weeks vocal rest, um, which was very difficult for me to keep my mouth shut for two weeks. <laughs> and, um, I mean, not one peep you could you make, nothing... Um, no exercise, nothing that puts strain on your throat. But two months later, I was back singing my debut of Vepre Sicilienne in Paris. Uh, it, it's truly a miracle. And um, it's a real stigma with opera singers, especially opera singers, to talk about having a vocal impediment and going and having surgery because football players, baseball players, 
you know, you hear, you read it in the news all every day. Oh, they tore a rotator cuff. Well, he went and had surgery, and he's fine. Well, ours isn't a rotator cuff. It's these two little right. cords that vibrate in our throat, and we abuse them so much. It's very common, but there's still stigma. Oh, she has bad technique. Oh, she's singing wrong. Oh, it's the end of her career. And um, I just came out and said, "This is what happened." And and I've been great since then. So psychologically, during that period of time, oh. how do you feel with that? You say, "Oh my gosh, this is in my world," and things like that. You know, the doctor, he he's very cavalier. Doctors, I tells, and I and I thank him for that. Extremely positive. Ninety nine point nine percent recovery. He said, chance of recovery. Great. But what if I'm that point one percent? You know, what if you your hand shakes、That's、when、right. you have that laser in your hand? You know, there's so many what ifs that、right. go through your mind, and and I had to. I can't say I'm a religious person,、mm-hmm. um, but I had to just say if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Because if you fret about it and you worry about it, but you, there were many sleepless nights, many crying nights,、right. many many nights you just think, oh, what what will I do if I don't sing? And then I thought, "Whoa, Sandra, you were given this gift for some reason. I don't think you're done with what you're supposed to do in this world." And I strongly believe that it was like a little voice in the back of my head that said, "You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine." And I was not without a lot of work. I mean, I had months. I had to learn how to re-sing, and not just after I did Vepercisilienne. It was years that I was still. Relearning how to sing. The voice felt different after. The- oh, absolutely! Everything because if you have an impediment on one of the chords, you have to push more air to make them phonate. Instead of a normal person's chords, we're just talking now. I would have to give it air like that, pressure, and so I had to learn how to sing, giving less pressure. And muscle memory is a is a terrible thing to retrain, as any ballet dancer or gymnast or anyone will teach you. It's difficult. Not only for this kind of instance, but normally, you know, because it's so intricate. Yes. And、uh, every day, any cold or anything, does、oh, yeah. that really kind of make you insecure in a certain way? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> With the HD coming up on Saturday,、um, I used to be. I will、yeah. say, I used to be.、Um, and then fear takes over. And I don't. I didn't want to live in fear. And、um, I really have to say, this virus that I got last April changed my life because I couldn't sing for three months. I was incapacitated terribly. We also then didn't know if I was going to sing again or not because the virus caused my vocal cords to swell up. So terribly, they look like two little golf balls in my throat. I couldn't swallow pills. I couldn't swallow anything, and because I were swollen so quickly, it rapidly one of the cords actually had a slight tear on it, and、uh, you know, it put my life into perspective. And it's it truly was like another chance in a way. And、um, I just said, if I don't do this, I'll do something else. And it was like all that fear was lifted off of me. And I remembered why I did this in the first place is because I love to sing, and it's sometimes you need that perspective to just say, "Wait, what am I doing here? I love what I do. I got into this because I love to sing, and I love singing opera."、Right. 
So it lifted all that fear away, really. And yeah, I'm not going to go to a rock concert that night before I do the high def broadcast. I don't smoke, you know, I drink in moderation, all of those things that all singers do. But that, that paralyzing fear, gone. Really gone. Well, I guess that's. I'm lucky. <laughs> yes. Lucky. Yes. Writing of Radvanovsky's 2008 concert of Verdi scenes and duets with Dmitry Hovorostovsky, the critic Jason Victor Serenus notes, The soprano's greatest opportunity to shine comes not in the duets, but in one of her two encores, Davorjak's heart-tugging Song to the Moon from Ruzalka. Her tone is gorgeous and the depth of her emotional commitment so deeply moving as to render unimportant how slowly she sings while acknowledging that some opera lovers will miss the greater dynamic variation and rapt soft singing that Renee Fleming and others have brought to recordings of this aria, there is much to be said for a voice that literally quivers with what, to my ears, feels like genuine sentiment. Here then is the famous Song to the Moon from Davojak's Ruzalka, as sung by Sondra Radvanovsky.
Ratvanovsky is married to Canadian Duncan Lear, who is also her business manager. The couple married in December 2001 and now call Toronto, Canada home. As Ratvanovsky explains, she loves Toronto, where she can just be Sandra in jeans and a t-shirt, surrounded by a great group of friends. I married a lovely Canadian and have lived there for 11 years, mm-hmm. and I really call it home. You're going, uh, you live in Toronto? Yeah, we live outside of Toronto, yeah. Uh, well, as I say, my husband and I say, we have an expensive storage unit outside <laughs> of Toronto. <laughs> All of our furniture is there, but we're never there. But, it, it, you know what, it's lovely. We live on 20 acres, just quiet, secluded trees, uh-huh. little pond, right. in the middle of nowhere. And wherever we travel around the world, we're always right in downtown. We're downtown New York, you know, downtown Paris, downtown London. And so the last thing we want when we go home is that hustle and bustle again. So just, you know, you can walk around in your pajamas and nobody sees you and, and to sleep without earplugs and, and all of that is it's a joy. It really is. It's a peacefulness. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's it's so important to really ground ourselves and, and to rejuvenate and regenerate because it's difficult what we do in this day and age too with the flying and going through airports and all of that it's it's crazy is he in the same field no he's my business manager actually Ah. he was trained he was musically trained he went to the choir college there in downtown toronto called saint michael's choir college and his uh classmate was michael shotta the tenor um and michael was the one who actually introduced us 12 years ago so thank you michael and um so my husband actually has a very good singing voice he just didn't have the personality to get up and do it and so he went to college for business and has a business degree so he plays the piano he understands singing and he understands finances i mean he dropped out of the heavens and landed on my lap i know so he travels with me and um I don't know if all of you know, but um, musicians are not necessarily the best with money and finances. So he does all of that. Um, and then he interfaces with my publicist and my five managers around the world. So I sing. You so sing. That's all I do. I so sing. So do you talk business every night? You go home and things like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's nothing romantic about that part of it. I got to say, you know, you come home, okay, honey, what interviews do I have to do? You know, right. who wrote web mail, you know, fan mail, all the, the nitty gritty that people just don't understand about this career. It's right, not right. glamorous in the least bit. How do you like to work with your husband day in, day out? I mean, it could be very good, but sometimes it may be a little bit too much. You know, we've we've been married now almost 11 years. It'll be 11 years, can you believe? 11 years, December 21st, and uh, in those 11 years, we have had one fight. Really? One fight. And it wasn't a knock-down, blow-em-out kind of fight. It was just like, I don't like you right now, I'm leaving. <laughs> um, Clearance. Exactly. But, we're you know, we're together. 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year. And I say to people, I'm I'm really grateful I married my best friend as well as, you know, my husband. But he's he's my best friend, and he is, is great. truly, truly a godsend. I know, and it sounds all mushy and romantic, but, know. you know, we, we find a way to really separate the business from the personal life. And, um, and it's great because I have someone just to go home and go, blah. You know, and get it all off my chest, and then it's gone. 
So I think one thing good about it is that you, because you two both are always together, so you probably won't miss your home, so-called. It sounds good. It sounds good in theory, but yeah, it's um, no, I miss it. And you know, I have to say, the longer and longer I'm in this career, the more and more I miss home. Mm. And uh, it's tough. That's the toughest part about it. That birthdays, holidays, weddings, funerals, you miss them all. And it's difficult. It really is. And you have to have friends that understand. This is what I do. Unfortunately, I'm on the road. If you want to see me, you have to come to Munich, Germany. Or, you know, you have to come to New York City or wherever we're singing. And the group of friends we have are the best. They're really the best. They understand what it's like, the traveling and... They're great, and they make time when we're home. We cram everything into, you know, two days here, three days here, because on average we're gone 11, 10 and a half months to 11 months out of the year. Do you have a time, say, in the summer where you just say, I will not accept anything, I'm going to take a break? I I said that to my manager last year, unfortunately. (laughs) This being 2012, we are booked into the 2017-18 season with a few contracts now in 2019. So I say this to him last year, and, you know, it'll take effect the summer of 2017. But, yes, I, I, I think it's singing the big, heavy repertoire that I sing, not just vocally, but also emotionally heavy. Right, right. Um, you just sometimes need to sit at home and stare at your four walls and wear your pajamas all day right. and decompress. In a 2009 Opera News article, Adam Wasserman noted, on the outside, Radvanovsky is all toothy smile and good cheer. Yet there seems to be an underlying melancholy about the soprano, an inchoate mix of professional disappointment, personal tragedy, and maybe even travel-induced fatigue, that at her best moments can seem to endow her characterizations with a poignant vulnerability, and at other times might make us seem out of place and coolly disconnected on stage. Indeed, the impression comes into focus as Radvanovsky speaks about the repertoire she has specialized in. I like arias that are kind of sad, she notes. The Morshulali Rosé, the Song to the Moon, the Morendo, the Morbido kind of arias. Not the Ditali Amor Kedirshi happy stuff, she says. I don't like singing happy stuff. I'm not funny. I'm a very happy person in life, but I don't like being happy on stage, she continues. I have had a lot of great sadness in my life, and maybe that's my outlet for dealing with all of it, by airing all of that on stage. After the performance, do you often say, well, I should have had done something like this, like that? Do you do Beat that? myself up? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I used to. I used to. And I, and I still do think I, I'm a big perfectionist. Um, I always want to do better. I always want to do more. Um, I always feel there is more. But it's live theater, and we really have to be kind and gentle to ourselves because we could beat ourselves up about, you know, a stage movement or one note. But the excitement is that it it is live theater and that there is, there's always errors and things that happen on stage, whether it be costumes that don't function properly or, oh, well, I, I blew that note tonight. But, you know, I think a lot of the audiences, the audience members, they don't hear it. They don't hear it. And a lot of the mistakes we make don't really make it over the orchestra. We think we really messed up, but, you know, 
I just do my best. And I, every before every show, you know, I say a little prayer to my father who passed away and wherever he is, and just say, just allow me to do the very best I can tonight. That's all I ask for. I don't want perfection. I just want to be able to do the best I can do. Was he a great fan, of course? Or how long when did he die? My dad died very young. I was 17 when my dad uh-huh. died. And uh, only got to hear me sing one voice competition. Is that right? Never heard me sing with the orchestra. He was very young. He was 54 when he passed away, and I, I found him dead, unfortunately. So um, he never really got to experience what I do mm-hmm. and... You know. But you knew he wanted, he, both of your parents supported what you were doing. Absolutely. My dad, very early on, made a lot of sacrifices. Both my parents did, as I think any parent does of a, a child that has a talent and you really want to pursue that. You know, my mom would go without buying extra special groceries for weeks just so she could pay for my voice lessons mm-hmm. because we weren't an affluent family at all. Um, yeah, the sacrifices she made, time-wise, too, it, Unbelievable. Does she travel? Is she able to travel to hear you today? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She doesn't want to come to this. She, she wants to see it in the movie theaters because she really enjoys watching them at live in the cinemas um, because the backstage experience and all of that. She really enjoys it. See? So, I know. <laughs> I know. My mom. Plus, you know, she's going to be 75, so it has to be a special trip for her um, to come and see it. But Actually, I think that's it's a very, very good project. And the, the programs, you know, people actually can see you yep. much more closer. Absolutely. They can see everything, every aspect of it. And I think it's really taken the, the mysteriousness out of it. You know, the in some ways, the mystique of it, like, oh, what's going on backstage behind it? And I, I think it's good. I think it's going to bring more people to the opera for sure. And um, to show them that, look, we're only human. What we're doing, you know, it, it's it's all pretend and make-believe but the singing is real and the orchestra is real and our intentions are real but all of that you know it's to transport and touch as many people as we can that's my goal in life really and thanks to peter gelb the general manager at the met he's made that possible for a lot of people when that time comes hopefully many years from now that you decide to stop singing do you think you'll teach or just walk away from opera or what do you want to do at that point or do you have any idea yeah. you know I'm, I'm 43 now and this they call the prime years of our career I would like to say that I would teach because I really have a passion for young artists and keeping opera alive um, but you know hopefully I'll be doing this for another 10-15 years and at or the even end longer of, well touch wood right um, but who knows at the end of that it's it's tiring it is a tiring career traveling around the world and I might just want to sit at home and drink pina coladas in my house <laughs> and, you know, uh, eat bonbons all day. And, you know, if I choose that, I probably will be bored in about five minutes because I like the contact with people and I and I like bringing music to the world. So I'm going to hopefully sing and we'll see from there. You consider yourself a probably never struggle with your career. I hope not. I've been You're very fortunate. Smooth, right? I, I, I have... Besides the two injuries, vocal injuries, I've been very blessed. I have to say that Metropolitan Opera has given me so much, and um, they've believed in me so much. And I really, my career went like this. I just started running. I mean, I I did my first full role at the Metropolitan Opera. Like I said, when I was 27, I did Trovatore. I mean, who does that? Who does that? A lot of young singers are not as lucky as you are. What would you say to them, though? Keep working. 
And unfortunately, they have to work harder than our generation did because there's less and less opportunities with opera companies going under. They have to just keep keep pounding through it. And if you don't love it, do something else. In many ways, Sondra Radvanovsky typifies what it means to be a modern-day diva. She once stated that she'd like to become the people's diva and strongly believes that opera shouldn't be a foreign art form. It should be as accessible as rock music. Despite her tremendous vocal assets and a reputation as one of the world's top sopranos, she brings a refreshing down-to-earth personality, a can-do attitude, and an irreproachable work ethic to everything that she does. I, for one, am certainly looking forward to hearing many more performances from this wonderful artist, and maybe, just maybe, I'll get the chance to interview her in the near future for a follow-up program to this one. All I can say is watch this space. Before I leave you with the well-known Bolero from Act 5 of Verdi's I Vespri Siciliani, I'd like to credit the following podcasts for the interview snippets heard in tonight's program. Classic Talk with Bing and Dennis, Behind the Curtain at Los Angeles Opera with Brian Lawrenson, The Delos Insider with Lindsay Coop, and Backstage at Lyric with Roger Pines. A reminder as well that tonight's program will be available for download from On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. Should you wish to get in touch with me, you can do so via email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com, via Facebook, or even via Twitter. I'll be back on the airwaves at 8pm on Friday the 12th of April for a special tribute to iconic soprano Montserrat Caballé, who turns 80 this year. I do hope you will join me then. But for now, here's Sondra Radvanovsky singing us out with the bolero from Verdi's I Vespri Siciliani. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful evening and a relaxing weekend. Good night.
Sweet, 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 sweet